I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, producer Jonah Primo here and welcome to Principle of Charity, where we inject curiosity and generosity back into our conversations on big social issues. Now today, we're exploring trigger warnings. And Lloyd will be asking our experts from last week, Nicole and Victoria, some personal and challenging questions. If you missed last week's episode, I really encourage you to press pause, go back and have a listen as it will contextualize some of the conversation you're about to hear. For everyone else, here's a quick refresher. The basic idea is that it allows them to prepare, to brace, to process a little bit ahead of time that they're going to be things that might be disturbing for them. And then I guess potentially to decide to leave the room or to, to you know, not not want to engage if, if they have the opportunity to not, not engage. So is it those sort of those two things? That's kind of the idea. There's an expectation that survivors, if they're given a trigger warning, will leave, although in practice, hardly anyone ever does. And before we get into the conversation, we want to encourage you to join immersive journalist, psychonaut, and best-selling author, Michael Pollan, for an evening that will change the way you see food, drugs, and how the human and natural worlds intersect. Live on stage in May 2023 in a city near you, tickets are selling fast, so get in quick at thinkinc.org.au. Now, over to Lloyd. Victoria and Nicole, this is the part of the show where we really do get into, uh, having explored the issues with Emil, we get into the principle of charity itself. And and, uh, as you are aware, part of the principle of charity is to identify the strongest points of the other. It is to create a almost a science to our thinking, to explore other dimensions, to ensure that we are not in our own bubbles. Victoria, let me start with you. What do you see as the main arguments in favour of trigger warnings? I'd say if if a trauma survivor sees a warning and they have, whether or not they're avoiding or getting an, an immediate emotional benefit from it, if it's contributing less to a feeling of uh, institutional betrayal overall or a feeling that their community is supporting them, I feel like that's still a great outcome. And that is something that going like from our lab studies this is why I clarified sort of what we looked at in terms of emotion I said like the cultural aspects we're a bit more shaky on that we've looked at the immediate emotional reactions but in terms of these broader cultural reach of of what just having a trigger warning what that means to somebody in a cultural sense and how it's developing a space um the studies don't reach that far yet and I don't know if a lab study is ever going to be able to reach that far so I Mm -hmm. think the most the strongest reason why you would have one is that however many percentage of people that, you know, do go on to experience PTSD or do have a mental, uh, clinical mental disorder or just don't 
feel like they want to view something negative or whatever, whatever the reason is, if somebody sees a trigger warning and it's contributing to a greater sense that that community they're in is supportive and that instructor might be somebody signals to them, hey, that instructor actually might listen to me or that instructor is supportive. Um, I think that is probably the strongest reason why somebody would, would want to use one. Um, yeah, so that, if, I guess I'll leave it there without the, the reason why I don't like them is mainly because they don't do anything. You know what it's, you know what it's only the second strongest reason? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. No. <laughs> Just one. Okay. Well, okay. well no, not the second. I was just going to say, I just don't think, I think I agree with Nicole as well on, not just on that point, but the fact that they're not going far enough, but my side of they're not going far enough is I just don't think they're really doing anything. Like, I don't think they're giving people the benefits that we want them to be getting. And I mm. think it, we need to go further in a sense that it needs to be about the resources. It needs to be about the culture change. It needs to be about funding for mental health in universities and recruiting the right experts in organisations, in universities, in organisations that ex- that deal with trauma on a daily basis, like first responders or uh, content moderators that see hundreds of disturbing images online and they have no infrastructure set up for them to deal with PTSD. So I think it's just we need to go beyond trigger warnings in the sense that I don't think they're doing what we want them to be doing. So that's, I I would also really strongly agree with the beyond statement of that. So that's my two (laughs) bits. Got it. Particularly the institutional support statement, uh, which is the alternative to institutional betrayal. Nicole, let, let me, let me come to you now. And within the domain, again, of the principle of charity, what do you see as the main arguments against the use of trigger warnings, uh, and not just in the university setting, but across the media landscape as well? Well, I think Victoria's right. They're ineffective. Um, In sociology, we have this term called symbolic compliance, where we say that organizations are the quickest to adopt, especially anti-discrimination policies, when they don't do very much, when they are just a symbol that you are compliant with anti-discrimination law. And I'm critical of trigger warnings for that exact reason. They're not particularly effective. And I do worry that for a lot of people who put them in place, they think that it's enough. They think that having that trigger warning is enough to check the box and say, all right, we told people at the beginning of this TV show that we were going to have a sexual assault. So now it's not okay for you to get angry if you don't like how we depicted sexual assault. I think that's the strongest reason to get rid of them is to say, we're going to change the bar for what is showing support to sexual assault survivors. Your content needs to be supportive, not just telling people, you know, here's a warning that we're going to continue to be unsupportive. And do you see any good argument in the concept that, you know, you were exploring with Emil and and the concept that not having the trigger, really, the trigger warning does build some resilience? Do you see any strength in that argument? Not really. (laughs) I don't think it builds resilience because I don't think, I think that when we are re-traumatizing survivors over and over through institutional betrayal, that's not building resiliency, that's compounded harm. I would feel a bit differently if our discussions of sexual violence tended to be better quality, right? So if our discussions of sexual violence always position sexual assaults as a social problem, always positioned sexual assault survivors as people who deserve help. I might feel differently about it, but since so much of the content is itself a new traumatic event to experience this type of betrayal, I don't see as much support for that kind of an idea that that will build resiliency. 
Victoria, coming to you now, looking at your research, looking at your studies, you've spent a great deal of time looking, I suppose, not only at your hypotheses, but testing them. What is the one area of your hypothesis or your view right now that you are the least certain about that you want to keep on investigating and get more data about? Uh, Probably the avoidance angle, because that's sort of something... So traditionally, when you think of... um, psychopathologies you'd think of avoidance as like a really bad thing um and that it's uh maintaining mental disorders because people aren't yeah like getting over what they're scared of and they're not you know habituating to that thing and that's actually a freudian concept so it's very old uh but it's actually so much more complicated than that and there's this whole thing going on with um for example a very new area of research um is about Uh, self-triggering. So there's a subset of people with PTSD who actually approach content related to their trauma. They voluntarily will seek it out. Mm -hmm. And it seems to be a meaning-making activity because they've had this traumatic event and they're trying to make sense of it. And so they'll, they'll watch content related to it to try and find meaning. And so that's a total opposite to behaviors, behavior to what you would consider in a traditional PTSD framework of this, of the, one of the symptom clusters is avoidance, but these people aren't avoiding, they're approaching. And it's not associated with better outcomes. It's actually associated with increased PTSD symptoms. So I think the avoidance angle, um, what, how people are using avoidance, how they're approaching things, that's really interesting to me. And also this concept of just morbid curiosity and the fact that people will just keep exposing themselves to nasty stuff at their own detriment again and again and again. I know I experience it. I'll see an Instagram blur with a really disturbing thing underneath it and I'll be like, I want to see what that is, even though I know it will be disturbing. But why, why do I have that curiosity? So that avoidance angle sort of mixing in with um, the way that we know it's interacting in certain um, clinical disorders is really, really fascinating to me. Nicole, how about you? Uh, when I was looking at your paper, um, Beyond Trigger Warnings, that, that I think you wrote for the American Sociological Association, I mean, it came across as quite definitive, quite directive about what professors should do. And I was wondering when you, I think that was written about two years ago, right? Some, somewhere about there. Where, where, where do the doubts sit for you now when you look at you know, your material or your views, uh, where, where do you feel the least confident um, or the most challenged in, in, in your perspective? Ooh, <laughs> I think where I feel the most challenged and seeing this paper out in the world for two years and seeing professors in particular try to implement my recommendations, I have been a bit concerned about how little expertise the average person, even in the social sciences, you know, people where you should be covering some of this material as part of your training to get a PhD in sociology, for example. I'm concerned by how little expertise the people who are in the positions to implement these findings have. And it's a much bigger chasm than I expected. So, for example, I recommended being flexible with students who are struggling to complete their materials, their class materials, instead of just saying, you know, this is the deadline, you need to follow it to a T. And one thing that has happened since this came out is the pandemic, where a lot of faculty started to think about trauma-informed approaches more broadly. They started to think about flexibility for students that were learning online and where people were often very physically ill and could not complete their course assignments on time. Something that happened is a lot of professors just started giving out lots and lots and lots of extensions And 
that's a really poor academic accommodation for a trauma survivor. Extensions are great if you're going to be sick for one week of class and then you just need a little bit of time. You'll work a little harder on a weekend and you'll catch up. But if you're going to have a traumatic experience and your PTSD from that traumatic experience will last for the entirety of the semester, it turns into the snowball effect where the survivor at the end of the term now has an entire term worth of work due at once. And they are not going to be able to succeed. We're setting them up to fail. And so one of the concerns I have about asking, you know, thinking about the college context, but in any of these other contexts too, to say, you know, step away from the trigger warning as your only way of responding and engage in more substantive discussions of sexual trauma, make sure that you are taking the trauma-informed approach is people aren't building expertise as quickly as we would hope. And some of the things that they're trying to do are more damaging than I would say a trigger Mm, warning would be. mm, mm, mm. Okay. Thank you. Can I ask you just on that comment about what professors should do when you consider yourself at this point, do you see yourself as a activist or as an intellectual exploring the issues? And, and if the former, the activist, do you think that sometimes inhibits your ability to integrate, you know, more alternative perspectives? I think I'm somewhere in between. I'm working on a very academic book based off of my dissertation work on this topic. Um, That feels very, very academic and describing the empirical realities of sexual trauma on college campuses and how it's shaping survivors' experiences. But also as an activist, I would say that there are some perspectives that I do not think are legitimate. For example, I think it's illegitimate to say that sexual trauma isn't damaging. I think it's illegitimate to say that we shouldn't care about rape as a social problem we want to end. These are fundamental. I also, (laughs) these are fundamental things that guide my research, but I'll also Mm. add that I have a real problem with any idea that it's on the survivor who's already dealing with their trauma, that we're going to create more work for them in comparison to another student. I see that as a form of discrimination. And I think these are really empirically held views, but it's true that it means that there are some mainstream ideas about how we should handle sexual assault victims that I will be very dismissive of. I see them as too harmful for survivors to be worth it. I want you to maybe just talk a little about nurturance. And this was in again in the context of the conversation about resilience. Do you think that your approach, Victoria, um, is sometimes under-nurturing? It depends what you mean by my approach. Well, let, let's say the approach to not having trigger warnings, the approach around resilience, that just even if, it's, even if it didn't work, even if trigger warnings didn't work, that just sending the signal to the victim that people are compassionate, that people care, may be a really powerful positive signal, just the signal of compassion. I would say that that's an empirical question because we don't actually know if all trauma survivors feel that way when they see a trigger warning. And that's something that I would like to ask people off just straight off the bat. So sometimes, because sometimes we could have this assumption that any trauma survivor that sees a trigger warning automatically thinks that, but they might not. And they might think the opposite. They might think they're being coddled um, depending on who it is. So that's something I'd, I'd personally love to investigate um, in terms of the, this more towards these kind of cultural questions about trigger warnings. Um, but yeah, so far we don't have any data on that. I'm always trying to come from the data that we've got. Um, and that's the same thing with like the the whole sort of nurturing 
side because sometimes things that seem intuitively nurturing can actually end up doing harm. So there was a few studies conducted on um, PTSD briefing methods after people had experienced natural disasters um, and they found that people that they sat down and told them um, this is what PTSD is, this is what you might experience, those people actually went on to develop PTSD at a higher rate than people who weren't debriefed and it was some kind of expectation effect where they were now expecting to appraise their sort of feelings and symptoms in a certain way that was uh, pathogenic and then they actually ended up uh, having worse outcomes. And so whenever we have these kind of things that intuitively seem like they should work, I, I would love to first test it out in an experiment just to see if that's happening because so much, so so often things in psychology are the opposite or just don't work the way that we sort of think that they should so, yeah, I just would say as an answer, I don't have enough data at the okay. moment for it. Nicole, let me, let me turn the question around to you, and that is do you think there are times where nurturing is detrimental to the victim? Meaning, for example, cognitive behavioural uh, therapists may push a victim to deal with a phobia by saying, I'm going to have to sensitize. You're going to have to get over this issue. Um, nurses, doctors, physios who are dealing with very ill patients, both mentally and physically, won't accept the, the statement, I can't do it. This is too hard for me. They push, they shove. What is your view on that? I think it's really important that we take an individualized approach, that survivors aren't a monolith and that Anything that you're doing when you're interacting with survivors is going to create a lot of different responses in the survivors themselves. And so some things that would be appropriately nurturing for some survivors, maybe in the direct aftermath of trauma, when they're still getting a bearing, your sense of self and identity is so distorted after mm-hmm. sexual assault that you mm-hmm. might need more nurturing in that moment than you would a few years down the line. And I do think it's important that when we are um, crafting materials around sexual assault, whether it's in the college classroom or in media, that we are doing it in a way that it's possible for survivors who have healed to be able to interact with them. I think that's Mm. one of the things that's kind of a hang up in our society right now is that some Mm. materials, Mm. when we're talking about this distressing material, we're talking about a huge array of different things, that some stuff that's victim blaming isn't inherently harmful, that's always going to be harmful no matter how much healing you do. In contrast, there's other stuff like getting empirically accurate information about sexual assault, reading news stories about sexual assault, especially those that are not sort of glorifying violence, but are just sort of reporting the facts of what took place. I do think there's something to be said about making sure that people can handle that kind of material moving forward and that a nurturing approach is with the goal of not avoiding the material but of being able to handle it more comfortably. Thank you. I don't know if you've come across Gina Bereka. She is a professor of feminist theory at, at the University of Connecticut. And when I was researching for this podcast, I came across an article, I think she wrote for the New York Times, but I'm going to read it and I'd love to hear your response to it. She says, the day I'm forced to offer trigger warnings before teaching is the day I stop teaching. To insist that I or any teacher warn students that the material in a class might upset them defeats the purpose of education. Colleges and universities must remain institutions that inflame curiosity and by their very existence disturb those who enter their gates. And she goes on to say, education is not designed to reassure. Its job is not to soothe but to disturb. 
Otherwise, intellect and emotion both remain inert and unmoved. If you protect the unexplored intellectual and psychological landscapes within yourself, you end up with a wilderness. And, and I'd love to hear both of your responses to that. Um, Victoria, I'll actually start with you first. What, what's your response to Gina Bereka's comment as, as a professor of feminist theory and as a teacher? Um, well, I guess there's a difference between keeping your same learning materials and the way you're going to teach something and putting a material uh, trigger warning on it or what sounds like she's saying is that if she put a trigger warning on it somehow it's going to change everything about her teaching or her classes. So because I just think trigger warnings are so inert and don't really do a lot of anything, if you're just adding a trigger warning to your existing content, I don't really think it's going to change a lot about what you absorb. And this is supported by some studies showing that there doesn't seem to be any differences between lecture content presented with or without a trigger warning in terms of how disturbing the material was or uh, learning outcomes. So it doesn't seem to diminish learning outcomes mm. or make them better. Mm. So I just come back to the trigger warnings don't really seem to be doing a lot of anything. Nicole, your view. Thank you. And a very similar reaction. I wondered why this professor needs the element of surprise to discuss these materials with their students because, you know, one of the things about taking some of these approaches, it's funny, trigger warnings would say you don't need to change your teaching at all. That if students have mm. a problem with your teaching and you warned them that they could be triggered, that now it's it's a way of maintaining control within the classroom to say, if you're upset, then you leave and I'm not going to shift at all as the professor. Mm. That's actually my critique of them is that mm. they are not pushing professors enough to consider what materials mm. are helpful and what materials are harmful. So I think it's funny that this public discussion around trigger warnings teaches them as we're talking about them as if they are a silencing tool. We're talking about them as if they infringe on free speech when they're not doing that at all. In fact, they were sort of a distraction from a really important conversation about are there some materials that we shouldn't be teaching because they support rape, because they encourage rape to take place in the future, which I think is the much more important and more interesting conversation. And both of you are on campuses, you are academics uh, at the beginning, I think, of, of your career. When you hear comments from people like Jonathan Haidt, uh, even Obama, I think many years ago, talking about coddling in the university campuses, particularly the American campuses, but maybe in, in a lot of other campuses all over the world. What, what's what's your gut reaction? Do you, do you think that uh, students are uh, coddled too much? I, get, I feel like the coddling assumption was based on a lot of assumptions about how people were coping when they see a trigger warning. And it was it was very based around the assumption that Mass numbers of students were seeing trigger warnings and then just not turning up to class and avoiding avoiding material. Um, but I'm not sure that a lot of those. I don't think a lot of those assumptions are actually true. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure what extent the cod, the coddling is actually going on. Again, I would want to see, I guess, data or even comparisons from like what materials were they using in the 70s compared to now, and are they better? Are they considered to be less traumatic? Are they actually helping you achieve a better learning outcome? Like those are the kind of things. If you can watch or or use something that's Mm. making you feel less negative and traumatized, but also you're learning more and critically engaging with it more. That would be the ultimate best outcome. I'm intrigued. What do you see, Victoria, the difference between the Australian coddling versus the American coddling? Do you think American campuses are, there's greater coddling than in Australia? I feel like Australians have a very like a laid back 
culture, I guess, in, in so many ways. Like in Australia, I've just, as an example, I have never, ever introduced my pronouns because it's just not a thing that we do in Australia. Whereas here, you do it quite often as part of your everyday speaking, um, which is just an interesting cultural difference because obviously here, they're very con- it's a concern about identifying someone's preferred pronoun. And in Australia, it's not that we don't care when someone has a different pronoun. It's just mm. it's not embedded as part of the, a cultural norm to do those kind of things. And it's the same with trigger warnings. Do you think identities are less strong in, in, in Australia, cultural identities? I think so. Yeah, I think we're just not as concerned with a lot of a lot of things that are considered part of the mainstay culture war in 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 the US, such as trigger warnings, microaggressions, safe spaces. They're mm. not saying those same conversations and same things aren't happening mm. in Australian mm. universities at all. Nicole, ha, 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 what's your view um, being on a campus? Uh, what what would your view be about Height and Obama's comments about the coddling? What's often cast as coddling, especially by the more conservative media, tends to be basic things that we do to make our spaces more inclusive. To give you a very real example, one of the participants in my research was sexually assaulted the day before a midterm, and she wanted to take her midterm a week later. That's very reasonable, right? (laughs) That's part about making a more inclusive campus, because if she had taken her midterm at the same time that she was trying to decide what to do about a sexual assault, she hadn't even told her parents yet, she was really overwhelmed, we're not actually going to be assessing her knowledge of the course material. We'll be assessing mm, her response mm. to the trauma. So in that case, mm. no, I don't think of that as coddling at all. I will mm. say, though, that there are some areas on college campuses in the U.S. that I do see a lot of coddling, and it tends to be coming from the other side. It tends to be... From the conservative side? Yeah, making sure that people don't feel hurt when you point out that something they have done has caused harm, I think is where I see the most coddling on American campuses. This idea of, I have to believe that you had the best of intent, you're trying your best. And a lot of these things might not actually be true. And so it's creating this narrative of, if you walk into this space, we assume that you inherently are doing the very best you can. And I think that that ideology, when we're talking about someone who's perpetrating a sexual assault, who's engaging in racist speech on campus, um, there's a lot of softening of those criticisms to fit an ideology that American higher ed is this really enlightened space and everybody who's in this space must already be inherently mm, good and mm, deserving mm. to be here. You know, the issue of coddling, you know, is not purely around trigger warnings per se. It's also about I get triggered by listening to a different point of view. I was thinking about this. Would we need a trigger warning on the Principle of Charity podcast if we had Jermaine Greer come onto the show who frequently may be out of step with a lot of current thinking. She may be out of step on, she may be pretty controversial on her views around transgender, on rape. Would we need a trigger warning to say we've got somebody like Jermaine Greer coming on and and her views may offend you? Nicole, what, what would your advice to us be? What would your counsel to us be? Yeah, well, my question would be, what is the value of bringing someone here who you know is going to cause harm? That that's what the trigger that's what the trigger warning is for. For a transgender person who's being put in danger based off of those views being aired, there's nothing you can do to make that less harmful. And so then the other question is why would we continue to platform anyone who might be causing harm with their words? But and do might- you think they should be deplatformed then? Do you think yes. we should not have them? Yes, absolutely. They shouldn't I- have the right they shouldn't have the right to 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 air their views. 
they're welcome to air their views, but I don't think that we should assist them in airing their views that are harmful, that that makes us quite complicit in making sure that their words will have a huge impact. Victoria, what's your view on deplatforming and and triggers? Do you think we should we we should have somebody like Jermaine Greer on our show? Let's assume that she she may she may offend numerous people on transgender. From her perspective, of course, she's not offending anyone. She's just giving what she believes is her best idea. Yeah, I guess it comes back to the giving airtime to people that you think might result in a net positive in the world versus a net negative. So if you had if you brought somebody on a show that potentially had controversial or harmful opinions, are you confident enough that whoever you got to interview that person or you've come, has come on to debate that person will successfully be able to show the audience or demonstrate to the audience that all of these views, for instance, if we looked at something controversial like um, if you were spreading misinformation about a certain uh, a certain thing that has happened recently uh, in regards to, say, uh, vaccines, um, would you be confident that what you're presenting on the show would present someone with a fair and balanced view that wouldn't lead somebody to make a harmful decision about whether or mm. not to, to get a vaccine? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think also in these sort of marketplace of idea type situations, um, they often end up sort of self-censoring themselves, which we can see in examples like Andrew Tate, who has just been massively deplatformed from everything because he he had a very niche following, which his extreme views within that niche following were fine. But as soon as he hit a mainstream platform like Twitter and the mainstream audiences were like, hang on, this isn't a view of someone that we want in our main, in our, we don't want this person on our platform. This These views are abhorrent and we don't want them. Um, he then was deplatformed from everything because the mass consensus sort of was, well, we don't actually want this person as part of a dialogue. Their, 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 their viewpoints aren't bringing anything healthy towards the dialogue. If I said to you, and this is my last question, one of the things that for, you know, I suppose in a democracy, in science, you, you want as many perspectives as possible. You want to be stretched. You want to be challenged. The data should potentially inform uh, where you go, you should be changing your mind regularly. When we look at the institutions, the academic institutions, particularly in social science, there is a view that social scientists tend to be from the left. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, for both of you, do you think that's true when you look at your departments? And if it is true, does it worry you? Does it worry you that maybe conservative people conservative social scientists don't feel maybe safe enough to air their views and that they equally feel victimized? Um, For me personally, I'm not as concerned about it, but it might be just the group that I'm in. So I sort of am a part of a heterodox psychology group, which has a whole range of different people, both from the right and the left in it. So it may be actually quite a unique space that I'm in, but I do have like a sort of balance of viewpoints from either side. Um, So I guess not for me, Hmm. um, but I'm not sure if, yeah, other people are concerned about, concerned about that as a being a possibility. I don't know if it's just the inherent nature of becoming a scientist that tends to align itself with certain data driven 
ideologies, which then tend to be the ideologies that the left does adopt. So it's sort of a self-making yeah. And, and psych- psychology over the years has, I think, become sort of – you know, moved much more into in, into that sort of scientific methodology of the yep. control studies, and and of course yep. that that may attract different people. Nicole, how about you? I'm not concerned about-, about it either, um, mm. and, but for the opposite reason that yes, sociology tends to be one of the most left leaning disciplines in American academia, but it's for exactly exactly the reason that Victoria just said, which is that sociologists build ideology based off of empirical data, and the right-wing and increasingly fascist arm of the Republican Party in the United States is not using data. And so it's not surprising that their views would not be represented as well on a college campus because the things that they're describing, including like who won the last election, is not based in the reality and the facts of what's going on in our society. I do think it's concerning that we have this rise of fascism in the United States right now that has made it more difficult to see the nuances in some of these opinions. But if you look at the American left, there is a really big difference between centrists and progressives, even though it's not going to come up on a survey because nobody's asking where people fall. A lot of those different values are represented on a college campus If you have that classification first of saying everyone has to be data-driven, everyone has to be believing in the real reality that we're living in, there are a lot of reasonable debates and disagreements still happening on American campuses, but they're Mm. not going to be coming from conservatives who are increasingly um, farther and farther removed from what's really taking place in our society, especially in the social sciences. And on that note, I would like to thank both of you. Uh, it has been incredibly informative. I think I leave this conversation probably more confused than I have uh, left <laughs> others. I uh, I love trigger warnings, but I uh, also clearly <laughs> see see in part the ineffectuality of them. So uh, fascinating conversation. Thank you to both of you, and uh, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks so much. That was uh, that was great. It's really nice to have your support on a podcast like this, which does try to air different views, but hopefully not platform people with views that are sit outside the reality-based community, as uh, as as Jonathan Rauch, you know, coined the term. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed the show, we'd love you to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really goes a long way to helping others discover our conversations. You can also find Principle of Charity on social media, where we hope you'll join the discussion. See you soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.